so this is going to uh, ex this introduction will exercise my uh, petrified uh, vocal capacities really, uh, and it's I hope I saw your name correctly. Is it Jakub Kovaleski? Yeah, great. Really. Uh, right. who's from Essex University, and Jakob is going to talk to us about Levinas and the deformalization of time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I just, you know, it's the last talk uh, of the conference, so let me just thank the organizers for a really, really interesting conference. Things to be said is a lot of work that you put into it, so thank you very much. And thank you to... Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, and secondly, thank you for sticking around as well. I was convinced I'm going to speak to an empty room, so, so now it's kind of more nerve-wracking as a result because I'm seeing all those faces. So, so yeah, but thanks a lot. Thank you. Um, okay, so the notion of deformalization appears as early as Husserl's Ideas One, where it is defined as a filling out of an empty form or a formal truth. To deformalize here means to insert a concrete or material content into an otherwise empty form. To deformalize time then would be to lead back the form of time to concrete situations or events which fill out or realize the formal structure of time. In a late interview, Levinas states that the deformalization of the notion of time constitutes the essential theme of his research, a theme he consciously borrows from Bergson, Rosenzweig and Heidegger, who all in their own way deformalized time before Levinas. It is clear then that neither the notion of deformalization nor the idea of deformalized time originally Levinasian. What is original in Levinas's approach to deformalization is his attempt to think the form of time in relation to the alterity of another person. As he puts it in time and the other, the condition of time lies in the relationship between humans. In other words, the specifically Levinasian deformalization examines the way in which intersubjective experiences concretize or materialize the formal structure of time. This particular focus allows Levinas to suggest that the form of time is not indifferent to the concrete situations which accomplish it, and that in fact, the experience of another person's alterity is able to affect the temporal form to a point of modifying it. Put simply, the Levinasian hypothesis amounts to saying that when the empty form of time is filled out by the experience of the concrete other, the temporal form itself becomes altered. In what follows, I will focus specifically on the Levinasian deformalization of the Husserlian notion of time. For Levinas, quote, the constitution of time in Husserl is also a constitution of time in terms of an already effective consciousness of presence in its disappearance and its retention, its immanence, and its anticipation. Disappearance and immanence that already imply what is to be established without any indication being given about the privileged empirical situation to which those modes of disappearance in the past and imminence in the future would be attached." End of quote. On the one hand then, time, or to be more exact, time consciousness, is able to constitute itself independently of any external content. It is, as Levinas puts it, an already effective consciousness of presence, which remains silent about the empirical situations to which it is attached. This means that the form of time is not conditioned by anything other than itself, and as such, it remains self-sufficient and indifferent to the experiences which fill, fill it out or realize it. On the other hand, time consciousness already implies what is to be established. While no concrete event will be able to modify time's autonomous form, every concrete event will conform to the predetermined form of time. The Levinasian deformalization of time would an aim to show that firstly, the temporal structures of some concrete experiences do not comply with the Husserlian model of time consciousness, 
and that secondly, the Husserlian model itself would have to be modified in order to account for the experiences which accomplish it. But if such a modification turns out to be possible, then the form of time can no longer be conceived as absolutely self-sufficient and thus indifferent to the empirical situations. Instead, we should think of time consciousness as in some sense dependent on something other than itself, namely, the concrete experiences which affect and modify the formal articulation of time. So what is, what is the form of time consciousness according to Husserl? For the purposes of this paper, I would like to emphasize three of its aspects. Firstly, time consciousness is made up of retentions which retain the past, primal impressions which present the now, and potentials which anticipate the future. This tripartite structure constitutes the immediate self-presence of consciousness to itself. Secondly, time consciousness involves a horizontal unification or synchronization of the immediate experiences with experiences no longer and not yet present. The immediate and most distant retentions and potentials are gathered together by a horizon, a border which circumscribes and unifies conscious life. Lastly, time consciousness is infinite. This is because, as Nicolas de Varen puts it, any projection into the future implicates the survival, i.e. self-projection, of my own consciousness as a spectator. In other words, every future experience presupposes an implicit consciousness of myself as there. We could thus say that time consciousness is governed by a sort of three-aspect internal tendency, which we might call its conatus. The achieve achievement of immediate self-presence, a horizontal synchronization of the past, present and future experiences, and an infinite self-projection. As I hope to demonstrate, it is this free aspect tendency of time consciousness which Levinas will attempt to put into question by leading the form of time back to concrete events which realize it. I will now examine the Levinasian deformalization of time in the phenomena of death, fecundity and responsibility. As I've already mentioned, Levinas thinks of the form of time in relation to the alterity of another person. The connection between death and intersubjectivity, however, might not seem immediately obvious. Levinas, nevertheless, insists on a certain correspondence between death and the other, which would lie in their shared unforeseeability. For Levinas' death is always unexpected. Even those about to die still can't tell exactly when death will arrive. In this sense, death is, death is analogous to the other, whose reactions I cannot anticipate. As Tanya notes, no matter how well I know the other, I can always be surprised. The connection between the other and death is best seen in the example of murder, where the unforeseeability of the murderer's blow and the unexpectedness of death it delivers become virtually indistinguishable. This is not to say that every death is suffered from the hands of the other, but rather that death is as, as unexpected as only the other can be. Furthermore, and this relates to the previous point, the event of death lies outside of the horizons of my conscious life. On the one hand, because no pretension can ever anticipate death. On the other hand, because Levinas remarks, when death is here, I am no longer here. Nevertheless, in order to be experienced, the alterity of death must somehow enter into a relationship with consciousness. Levinas himself points out that the description of the phenomenon of death is made while one is alive. This condition seems to generate a difficulty. Time consciousness has to include that which in principle and by definition is exterior to consciousness. Levinas seems to be aware of this problem. In order to illustrate this paradoxical relation, he evokes Macbeth, quote, had not the witches predicted that a man of woman born could do nothing against Macbeth, but here is Macduff, 
He was not a woman born. Death is coming now. Accursed by that tongue that tells Christ Macbeth to Macduff, I will not fight with thee. But immediately hope is reborn. Prior to death, there is always a last chance. That is what hero sees, not death. The hero is the one who always glimpses a last chance, the one who obstinately finds chances. Hope is not added to death by a sort of salto mortale, by a sort of inconsequence. It is in the very margin that is given, at the moment of death, to the subject who is going to die. Spiro spero, if I breathe, I hope. End of quote. When Macbeth realizes the imminence of his death, he resigns himself to it. I will not fight with thee. This, as Levinas observes, lasts only for a moment. Almost immediately, Macbeth regains hope. A sense of a last chance, of still having time, in a word, a non-acceptance of death, replaces the experience of dying. Importantly, this hope which conjures away the inevitability of death is essential to the experience of the latter. In fact, it is hope and not death which is grasped in the final hour. Death remains ungraspable. Death then seems to establish a relation with time consciousness through an experience of resignation and hope. Resignation presupposes a sense of having a future. In order to resign oneself to whatever may come, a remnant of time is needed to welcome one's fate. There is a horizon of pretensions, even in resignation. Furthermore, it's not the anticipatory horizon of pretensions, another, another name for hope, that, is, that this moment is not my last. If this is the case, hope, in which the alterity of death is experienced, would define and animate pretensions, which in turn would mean that death is paradoxically both beyond and within my present experience. Levinas' analysis of fecundity builds on his analysis of death. The structure of death as both within and outside of consciousness is developed further and, and takes the form of a relation to a future which is both my own and not mine. This is because the child is at once other than me and yet, in an important sense, I am my child. The child, Levinas says, is me a stranger to myself. This means that the child, insofar as they are me, extends my own time, stretching my temporal horizons. However, insofar as the child will live after my death, their future lies beyond my time, thus bursting my horizon. Hence, quote, the relation with the child, that is the relation with the other, that is fecundity, establishes relationship with the absolute future or infinite time, end of quote. Put more technically, the deformalization of time and fecundity seems to create a qualitative change in the structure of time consciousness. The potential chain, lim chain limited by the future horizon is in some sense doubled up. This doubling, however, removes the horizon which limits potentials, allowing for an infinite extension of the new potential chain. The doubling up and infinition of my potentials lets Levinas maintain that the future of the child is my adventure still, my, ad my future in a very new sense, despite the discontinuity. I should probably say that this modification of the form of time is not as radical as it may initially seem. Consciousness exists without limits in an infinite time, even prior to the event of having a child. The open horizon which could seem to limit potentials already attests to a potential infinity of future experiences towards which I project myself. Parenthood would then only be a natural extension of an already effective self-projection. Nevertheless, fecundity marks an advance with regards to the analysis of death, since it introduces a sense of a time, the time of the child, which bypasses the possibility of my absence by continuing beyond my death. 
The paradoxical structure of death and fecundity as an event within and beyond consciousness finds its most worked out expression in Levinas's account of responsibility. Before delving into the analysis of responsibility, however, I would like to mention that I do not wish to examine the ethical or normative aspects of this experience. Instead, I would like to focus solely on the temporality of responsibility and its relation to time consciousness. The appearance of another person for whom I find myself responsible is characterized by Levinas as an anachronous immediacy. This means that when the other provokes my responsibility, this provocation is immediately apprehended. And yet, this apprehension misses the source of the provocation, as if that which incited my responsibility has already withdrawn. As Levinas puts it, the face approached has already fallen into the past with an unrecuperable lapse. One helpful way to understand what Levinas means by the figure of a temporal lapse, which belongs to the manifestation of the other, is to imagine a record skipping a beat. The melody starts, lasts uninterrupted for a minute or so, and all of a sudden skips a note, only to resume as normal a split second later. And yet the missed note, that minute break, bothers us, and so we get out of bed and replay the song. Another helpful way to understand the lapse is aging. Catherine Malabu distinguishes between two ways of conceptualizing growing older. The first, she re remarks, is inconceivable apart from the gradual movement of becoming old. This is aging as a steady process of growing older. We slowly lose hair, put on weight, become wrinkled and weaker. But there is also aging as an event. Quote, the concept of aging can no longer be termed becoming old, but rather the instantaneity of aging, which, which, we, can, which, which we can understand as an unexpected sudden metamorphosis, like the ones we sometimes read about, her hair went white overnight, end of quote. In a recent documentary about his life, the musician Nick Cave looks into the camera, examining his wrinkles and asks, when the hell did I get old? As if the event of aging took place suddenly, behind his back, unnoticed or in secrecy, without an ident identifiable place and time which could be remembered. Nevertheless, despite this lapse of time, or rather because of it, aging concerns him. The incitement to responsibility, the fact that the other concerns me, is as sudden and as secretive as the event of aging. When we notice it, it has already taken place. When we try to remember it, we can't. In other words, the lapse signifies a temporal refusal or a resistance of the other's provocation to both immediate self-presence and memory. As Levinas writes, Responsibility for another person opens the distance of a diachrony without a common present, where difference is the past that cannot be caught up with. Now, responsibility for Levinas is not a simple dyadic relation between me and another person. Rather, as Levinas puts it in one of his essays, responsibility is a plot with three personages, myself, the other, and a third party. The fact that the third is co-present with another person means that the temporality of responsibi responsibility goes beyond the anachronous immediacy of the face. More exactly, the third introduces a sense of history into what otherwise might seem like an ahistorical relationship with the other here and now. Recall that the incitement to responsibility was characterized by a temporal lapse, which meant that it has taken place unnoticed and that it could not be remembered. For Levinas, quote, the, signific the significance of an immemorial past, starting from responsibility for the other person, comes in the heteronomy of an order, such as my non-intentional participation in the history of humanity and the past of others who regard me, end of quote. The question then is, how is a temporal lapse which places the other's provocation to responsibility outside of my memory 
able to situate me within what Levinas calls the history of humanity? How is the fact that the face has already fallen into the past able to implicate me in the past of others? <coughs> the other stands in a relationship with the third party, writes Levinas, and almost immediately quotes the book of Isaiah, peace to the neighbor and the one far off. It would seem that the very presence of the third party in the experience of responsibility, the fact that the other stands in a relationship with the third, leads consciousness from the neighbor to the one far off, i.e. to, to countless, and distant, countless distant and absent others. This distance and absence is spatial as well as temporal, which means uh, that the third extends the anachronism of the face to those absent from my immediate relation with the other here and now. In other words, the third party gives rise to a sense of other pasts by generalizing or universalizing the immemorial past from which the other provokes me. What's more, the historical character of responsibility also implies a dimension which Levinas calls the pure future, a meaningful order significant beyond one's death. Levinas emphasizes that this pure future is not a promise of resurrection. It is rather an admission of my finitude and an acknowledgement that my responsibility for others continues beyond my death. The tomb is not a refuge, Levinas writes. It is not a pardon. The dead remains. The third party then opens up uh, a possibility of a past and a future, unrestricted, although conditioned by, my responsibility for another person here and now. Thanks to the third party, the moment I respond to the provocation of the other, I have already stepped into the history of humanity and the past and future of others it includes. The Levinasian deformalization of time consisted of three steps. It aimed to show that, firstly, there are experiences whose temporal structure is incompatible with the Husserlian time consciousness. Secondly, that in order to account for these experiences, the form of time will have to be modified. Thirdly, that such alteration would put into question the self-sufficiency of time consciousness and its apparent indifference to concrete situations. As I hope to have shown, the phenomena of death, fecundity and responsibility possess temporalities which at first glance seem in tension with the Husserlian form of time and its conatus. The event of death is in conflict with self-presence, horizontal synchronization, and infinite self-projection. Fecundity introduces infinite time which bypasses death, but contrasts with self-presence and horizontal synchrony. Responsibility involves a temporal lapse and a sense of history which seem to escape all three aspects of time consciousness. Nonetheless, the form of time offers some resistance to modification. The experience of death in hope and resignation is fully compatible with the regular functioning of time consciousness. And although the child's future seems to break with my horizons, the infinite time of fecundity confirms and repeats the self-proclaimed immortality of consciousness and with it a discontinuous self-presence. It would thus seem that it is only responsibility which is able to successfully alter time consciousness. The lapse escapes immediate self-presence, while the immemorial past and pure future exceed the horizons of my conscious life. Additionally, history, by implying my finitude, effectively marks, effectively marks an end of my infinite self-projection. If this is correct, we can draw the following conclusions. One, that the form of time consciousness doesn't predetermine the temporal shape of all concrete events. Two, that the form of time is more plastic or malleable than Husserl wants us to think. And three, that time consciousness cannot by itself produce all temporal forms and, and thus depends for them on the concrete other for, for whom it finds itself responsible. Thank you. <laughs>